Thank you for listening to the Sunday School Teaching Ministry of Pastor Luke Pollock at the Home Church of Lodi, California. You can get more information about our church and about starting a relationship with Jesus Christ at www.thehomechurch.net. Our prayer is that this message from God's Word will renew your heart and mind today. All right, well, good morning, everybody. It is a great day to look into the most amazing book in the world and to, uh, once again, dive into the book of Romans, uh, God's power to transform anyone. Many people ask the question, why does God let bad things happen to people? But if we pull back for just a minute, I think the most or the more appropriate question is, why does God let any good things happen to people? Why would he do that? Uh, All of us have done things that we know are wrong in God's eyes. (laughs) We We have blatantly disobeyed. We have intentionally crossed over the line that God has drawn. We are a world of lawbreakers, and we are rebellious, vile, wicked. Even God's own children, even born-again Christians, often break God's heart and rebel against Him. It baffles my mind, actually, when you stop and think about it, why would God let anything good happen to anybody? Two words, mercy and grace. (laughs) That's it. It's the heart of God. If there is a theme this morning, and if there is a theme that runs through all the way through especially Israel's history, it is mercy and grace. The mercy and grace of God. Romans 9 through 11, as we mentioned, is a very interesting section in the book of Romans, and it is really the 30,000-foot view of God's dealings with the Jews. To me, it's like the opening of a movie, you know, when they show the cityscape. <laughs> so many movies begin with flying over the, mo- or the city. And, and the, the reason they do that, it's called the extreme wide shot. And for cinematography, it's to help everybody uh, get their bearings and to answer the big questions. Okay, where, is the, where does this take place? What is the context of the story? And then you get those big questions out of the way. And so now I can focus in on the story. And in some ways, Romans 9 through 11, I think, is kind of doing that. It's God pulling back the camera and showing us God's grand plan for Israel. Romans 9 is their past, Romans 10 is their present, and Romans 11 is their future. And God is just kind of saying, I want you to get the big picture understanding of what I have done and what I'm going to do, so that you can have those kind of out of the way and focus on what God wants you to do. And that's then Romans chapter 12 and the remaining chapters of Romans where we really get practical. After all of these things Paul has talked about, let's talk about what we do with all this doctrine. And we're going to get there in a couple weeks. Paul so wants his people to be saved. As we see here in Romans chapter 9 through 11, one of the main things Paul is saying is, I just want my people, Israel, my Jewish brothers and sisters to be saved. I just want them to be saved. And, I, and God goes to great lengths, and he goes, Paul goes to great lengths to show what God has done for them, shows them in the Old Testament of what God has done for them to make sure that they have the opportunity to be saved. And we left off in chapter 10 last week being reminded that 
for the Jews to be saved, and for anyone really, they need to first hear the word. And for them, but for them to hear the word, there, there has to be a preacher. And for there to be a preacher, the preacher has to be sent. And Paul's point is that God has sent the prophets and the preachers throughout their history. Throughout Israel's history, God has been sending preachers. And, and uh, God even not only sent preachers, but God then sent his own son to not only preach, but then to die for them. And they still did not believe. And most Jews did not and have not followed the Messiah. So that's sort of a big question in everybody's mind. Okay, if all of this came through Israel's line and now most of Israel doesn't even uh, uh, believe the Messiah or follow Jesus, then um, what's going on? Uh, is this true? Is, 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 the, uh, is Israel still part of God's plan? Has God rejected Israel? And that's what really he's going to answer that question here and many others. But most Jews did not and have not followed the Messiah that God has sent them, even though he, God has sent preachers. So verse 16 of chapter 10 is where we pick up, and we'll kind of ease into chapter 11 here, all right? Verse 16, but they have not all obeyed the gospel. That is true. The Jews have not all obeyed the gospel. For Isaiah saith, Lord, who hath believed our report? See, God knew ahead of time, the Isaiah prophet prophesied that people wouldn't believe. Verse 17, so then faith cometh by hearing and hearing by the word of God. What Paul is saying is, is here that this is how it works. Someone gives the word, someone preaches the word, and then the hearer is then able to respond in faith to that word. The hearer doesn't know everything there is to know about Jesus or know everything there is to know about the truth or all of God's word. But listen, they have heard enough. They have heard the word enough to exercise faith in Christ. They hear the ring of truth in the word. They feel the spirit bringing conviction to their heart. They sense the drawing of the father to that word and then they put their trust in Christ. And, and people are able to do that when they hear the word of God. And it's a glorious thing when someone's saved. Hearing the word unlocks that faith. But Paul is not just stating this as a random statement. <clears throat> in context here, he is making the statement He's showing that for Israel, rejecting Christ is not a matter of not hearing. That's the point he's trying to make here. Israel has heard, and they could have responded in faith, but they've refused. Look at verse 18. But I say, they have not heard, or excuse me, have they not heard? Yes, verily, their sound went into all the earth, and their words unto the ends of the world. In other words, God has made sure that Israel has heard. They can't use the excuse, oh, we didn't hear. We didn't know that this was the Messiah. Oh, yes, you did. God made sure his word was spoken everywhere it needed to go. Through general revelation, that is through his creation, through special revelation, through the prophets and through the word of God. But for Israel, it's not a matter of not hearing. It's a matter of not accepting. Not accepting. Look at verse 19. But I say, did not Israel know? First Moses saith, I will provoke you to jealousy by them that are no people, and by a foolish nation I will anger you. There we are right there, a foolish nation. That's the Gentiles. That's us. That's Deuteronomy chapter 32 and verse 21. Even Moses said that this day would come. Verse 20, but Isaiah is very bold and saith, I was found of them that sought me not. 
I was made manifest unto them that asked not after me. But to Israel he saith, all day long I have stretched forth my hands unto a disobedient and gainsaying people. That's Isaiah 65. Paul's point here is that God has made everything crystal clear to Israel. Throughout their history and time, even Paul himself made it clear who the Messiah was, that they needed to believe in this Messiah in Christ, and even that God would move among the Gentiles. Moses talked about it. Isaiah talked about it. It's, it, it's plain and simple. That's what Paul is saying here. And look how merciful and patient that God has been with his people. Like someone holding out their hands all day long. Just inviting them to come back into his arms. Come on, come on back. Come on, people, come on back. Trust in this Messiah. I've given you my son. Come on, come on. What a beautiful picture of God's mercy. God holding out his hands all day long. How long can you hold out your arms, if you think about it? How long can you just hold your arms out like this? All day? No. And God is giving that picture. God has been holding out his hands all day long. He can't do this forever. He's given ample time for Israel to obey the gospel, and God is very, 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 very merciful. All day he's been holding it. Come on, come on, believe me, believe me. Now as we move to chapter 10, then we ask the question, okay, Paul, he's been holding out his hands, so is now, are you saying that this is it? God is done with Israel? He's no longer gonna hold out his hands. He's done, he's done with uh, all of his plans that he had given, the promises that he had once given to them. He's done with all of that. Thousands of years of God holding out his hands to Israel and God's patience for Israel has run out. Is God divorcing Israel and moving on? You know, the early church especially, they wanted to know this. I mean, Jews and Gentiles were sitting side by side in the churches and uh, they were wondering, is is this, are we, have we come to the place now, so many more Gentiles are filling the church, and, and is, have we come to the place now where the, it's the Jewish rejection? Uh, God is now going to move through the church, and Jews are gone. So Paul is going to clear that up, starting with an extremely clear statement, right at the very beginning of chapter 11 here. And, th- and here's what we're going to see, that it is God's undying commitment to Israel. In these next few verses, we're going to see that God keeps his commitments. He keeps his promises. Romans chapter 11, verse one, look what Paul says. I say then, hath God cast away his people? God forbid. For I also am an Israelite of the seed of Abraham, of the tribe of Benjamin. So here's the question, is God done with Israel? And a very blatant and clear, God forbid, absolutely not. In the most emphatic way possible, no. First proof of that, Paul says, is me, myself. If God was done with the Jews, then he would be done with me, Paul. He'd be done with me. I'm an Israelite. Paul says, I am of the seed of Abraham. So real quick, like, so to make, to make sure we're all on the same page here, what are we talking about when we say that God has made a promise to Israel and that he, they are his people and all of that? Well, 2,000 years before Paul, God looked down on the earth and he chose a man. A man from, the Ur, from Ur of the Chaldees. His name was Abram. And he chose that man to be the father of a nation which would then carry the promises of God to the entire world. Later, this people were called Israel. And God made a very clear three-part promise, a three-part covenant with this man, Abram. 
that he would give them their own land. He and his generation or his seed would have their own land. That he would give them many, many seed. And that they, they would be a blessing to the entire earth. There would be a blessing that would flow through them for, the entire, for all the families of the earth. Who is that blessing? That is Jesus. But 2,000 years later, in Paul's day now, these, the Jews that had come from that line, that seed of Abraham, as Paul just said, all those folks who had come from that seed have by and large rejected the Messiah, this blessing that God had promised. So since they have rejected the blessing, then the question on the table is, is God done with them? If they've rejected God's blessing, is God rejecting them? Now this is, the answer to this, and as he goes on in chapter 11, is applicable to us. You say, well, I'm not a Jew, why does this matter? Well, here's a couple reasons, or three reasons that it matters. Number one, there are implications on how we view modern Israel. Does God still want us to support them, or is he done with them? He's moving on. Number two, there are implications about God keeping promises in general. If he, if God would cast away these people, he made an unconditional promise to Abraham, if God would cast them away and say, forget it, I'm done, I made a promise, but I'm going back on my promise, well then, would God cast us away after promising us salvation? Could God do that? And then there are implications about our future as believers. If our future as as Gentiles and as Gentile believers is very closely tied to Israel's future. What happens to them in many ways is what happens to us. And so it would, it's very much in our, uh, in our concern what happens in Israel and if God really is truly keeping them and gonna keep his promise to them. So here's how God wants us to understand this whole, his whole dealings with Israel. Verse two, God hath not cast away his people which he foreknew. In other words, God knew beforehand, that is he foreknew, he knew beforehand that these people would reject him and still chose to give them the promises. God knew Abraham's seed would reject him. He knew that from, from way back. He foreknew that, but God still gave them the promise. So why would God change now? What ye not what the scripture saith of Elias or Elijah? how he maketh intercession to God against Israel, saying, Lord, they have killed thy prophets and digged down thine altars, and I am left alone, and they seek my life. But what saith the answer of God unto him? I have reserved to myself 7,000 men who have not bowed the knee to the image of Baal. God is using this amazing Old Testament example of Elijah here as a picture of what, was, what is happening with Israel right now. This, at this time, in Elijah's day, it was one of the most wicked points in all of Israel's history. The reign of Ahab and wicked Queen Jezebel. A time when literally they were killing the prophets of God, as many as they could. And during this dark time, Elijah the prophet said, God, I am all alone. I mean, I mean, they're just killing the prophets. It is a dark point in Israel's history and, it's, and they're coming after me. I'm the last one. And God said, wrong, Elijah. <laughs> I'm not, it's, it's not wrong that they're coming after you. They are coming after you, but you're wrong that you're the only one. There are still 7,000 people like you who have remained faithful. Now, really quick, that may not sound encouraging at the outset, <laughs> But uh, actually, it really is. 
And one reason it's really encouraging is that, that, listen, God knew at that time in Elijah's life, God knew the name of every single one of those 7,000 faithful people. Elijah thought, there's nobody, there's nobody. But God knew every single one, every single one. And listen, everybody, even if there's only 7,000 faithful people left in California, (laughs) may we be part of that number. And God sees every single one. Every single one in our homes, and we staying faithful, we're trusting the Lord, he sees us. But here's why Paul is using that story. Verse five, even so then, at this time, at this present time, also there is a remnant according to the election of grace. Remember, Paul, the, the, and the context here of all Romans 9, 10, and 11 is national blessing, not individual salvation. So what Paul is saying is, just like there was a minority of Jews who served God in Elijah's day, only 7,000, there is a minority of Jews who are true spiritual Israel today. These are called the remnant. Now currently, real quick, out of a, they say, this is, I don't know if these numbers are correct, but out of the approximate 15 million Jews in the world today, they say that there are about 300,000 Messianic Jews. Could be higher. These are Jews who believe in Christ. We don't know for sure, it's very hard to get those numbers. But, but Paul makes it clear here, at Paul's time and even still today, there is a remnant, a minority of Jews that God has chosen to work through. These are his chosen people and he, he has promised to give them his promises. This group is said to be according to the election of grace. In other words, God has elected, which is the same word for chosen. It's just another word for chosen. God has chosen to give this group the promised blessings by his grace. That's what that phrase means. It's not because they worked for it. It, As Paul will clarify later on, it's because they have put their faith in Christ. And so God, by his grace, has chosen to give them the blessings that flow from uh, his promises. Now God says a few verses later that he still desires to save some of the rejectors, some of the majority that have not served Christ, have not come under Christ. So that means, since God still desires for them to be saved, verse 14, that means this word elect here can't mean that God chooses these people for heaven and gives all the others no chance to accept him. That's not what this phrase means. Rather, it's obvious from the context here that it means that God has elected or chosen the remnant to receive the blessings of Abraham by his grace. If God was basing it on works, then maybe he would have chosen the majority of Israel. Because <laughs> they're just trying to do everything by works, do everything by works, do everything by works. But God is not basing this thing on works. He's already, Paul has made that extremely clear there in chapter 10. This is about grace through faith. And this fits the context in, as in these next couple of verses. Look, verse six. And if by grace, then it is no more of works. Otherwise, grace is no more grace. But if it be of works, then it is no more grace. Otherwise, work is no more work. What then? Israel hath not obtained that which he seeketh for. Listen, Israel hath not obtained that which he seeketh for. The majority of Israel is seeking and working and working and working and working, trying to get there. But the election hath obtained it. 
It's this other group, the, ch- the one that God has chosen to give it to, they, by grace, not by works, and the rest were blinded. So Israel, the majority, has not obtained the promise they were seeking after. They're trying to attain it by works. And if God gave it to them, he would no longer be giving the promises by grace. <clears throat> He'd have to cancel his whole grace thing that he talked about all the time. It has to be one or the other. It can't be both. And God has elected or chosen to give it to the remnant of Jews by grace. Now it says the majority then has been blinded. Now we talked about this a couple weeks ago. This is judicial blindness. This is God as an act because these people have rejected Christ and, uh, and said, God, I want nothing to do with you. I don't want anything to do with this Messiah. So because they have done that, then God now has blinded them further as an act of judgment. Now, there's, here's a quick theology side note, okay? This is another reason that this passage can't be referring to the doctrine of unconditional election. See, electing a certain few for heaven and then a larger group for hell, just God choosing this and saying, nope, these people have no chance, you can't do that. It wouldn't fit here. Because why would God need to blind people if they already are dead in sin and have no chance to be elected to heaven? What would be the point of even blinding them? It's pointless to poke the eyes out of a dead man. It does no good. So no, this is speaking of judicial blindness because they have rejected the Messiah. And God will now use their blindness for God's ultimate glory. God's going to use their blindness for good. That's what God is able to do as a sovereign God. Besides, as we see here, God is still giving them the opportunity to believe. He's still giving them the opportunity. He's still holding out his hands for them. Verse 8, according, as it is written, God hath given them the spirit of slumber, eyes that they should not see, and ears that they should not hear unto this day. And David saith, let their table be made a snare, and a trap, and a stumbling block, and a recompense unto them. Let their eyes be darkened that they may not see, and bow down their back always. So the majority have darkened eyes. They just can't see it. They can't see that Christ is the Messiah. They can't believe that Jesus is the one who God has promised. But here's here's the key verse, verse 11. I say then, have they stumbled that they should fall? God forbid. But rather, through their fall, salvation is come unto the Gentiles. For to provoke them, that is the Jews, to jealousy. So the first phrase of verse 11 there means, uh, has Israel fallen, have they stumbled so badly that they now have fallen and can't get up? (laughs) Uh, I've fallen and I can't get up. Have they stumbled that they should fall? Is this fall, is the stumbling that they're doing right now so bad that God is done with them? And Paul says again, God forbid. What is God doing then? God is using their rejection, as he says here, to steer the gospel to the Gentiles. And by doing this, what God knows is it will draw his people and provoke them to jealousy. So God is using their rejection by God's grace, by his sovereign power, he's going to use their rejection still for their good. In other words, he wants as many of them to return to him as possible. Now I want to give you a, a just a sweet little story, I think, to just clarify this and put in our minds what God is trying to do. Charles Swindoll told this, and I really thought it was great. Imagine the best restaurant in the world, okay? It opened in your town, our town. 
And, uh, and, and everything, it had everything you could think of, gourmet creations, uh, the best food you could imagine. This, this, this place was serving it. Uh, Michelin rated right here, chef in there. And, um, and so you decide to go with six or seven of it. So six or seven people, a little group, you go, but you realize once you get there, this thing is so expensive. It's so much, we can really only afford a hot dog and a basket of fries to share among all of us. But we're going to do it, and uh, we'll enjoy it nevertheless. But you look over next to you, and you see a whole group of 14 people walk in, and they order as many things on the menu as they can. They are just, just enjoying life in that restaurant. And they bring all that food, and you're over there trying to enjoy but finally, the, the host of that table stands up and tells his group, he says, listen, everybody, uh, you know, I, I, I'll pay for this meal, but nobody wants to eat this. This isn't really what we wanted. This is not quite what we thought it was going to be, so l- let's leave. And so the whole party leaves and just leaves all of their food right there on the table. You're sitting there with your little group, looking over at that big table full of just gourmet dishes, and uh, the owner of the restaurant comes along and says, you know, folks, um, we've, it's time to close the restaurant, and uh, there's nobody else coming in, and, you know, we're going to sit here and eat all the servers, and we're just going to go ahead and eat this food. Would you guys like to join us eating this food with us? Well, sure, man, before he can finish the sentence, you're, all, all your knees are under the table ready to start eating up. Now imagine then, in the meantime, <clears throat> the party, the people who had left, they're driving down the road, and they all of a sudden realize how stupid they just were. And they say, what have we done? I'm, we're all still hungry. Let's just at least eat this. They come. They drive back to the restaurant. They try the door, but it's locked. They can't get in. And so then they look. They start pressing their nose through the window, looking at you and all of your group eating their food. Paul here uses the verb parazileo which means to make jealous. Paul is saying that God, or he's not saying that God sought to make the Jews simply just to feel jealous and envious for just no apparent reason. No, the reason God wants to make the Jews jealous for what they see God doing among the Gentiles is that they would, it would prompt them to want what the Gentiles have. Salvation through their Messiah, Jesus. If you think about this party, this restaurant uh, symbolism here, that feeling of jealousy, the people outside pressing their noses up against the window watching what you have, just that jealousy alone wouldn't fill their stomach. That being really hungry would prompt them to want to do something about this, about their situation. And that's what God is trying to do. He says, I'm going to work. I'm going I'm to work in such a great work among the Gentiles. You're going to feel the richness, the beauty, the blessings of being a born-again believer. You're going to sense it. You're going to know it. Every day, you're going to be able to know, I am saved. I am saved. I'm secure in Christ and all the blessings that come from being a Christian. And what God wants the Jews to do is to look in and say, I wish we had that. How are they getting that from a Jewish Messiah? I want that. And that's what we're saying here. That's what Paul is saying. And amen, may it be. May the Jews see what the Gentiles have and want it. And that's Paul's message for the Gentiles. And number two, in these next few verses, we're gonna see God's unexpected calling of the Gentiles. Verse 12, now if the fall of them, he's gonna explain this further. Now if the fall of them, that is the Jews, 
be the riches of the world and the diminishing of them, the riches of the Gentiles, how much more their fullness. For I speak to you Gentiles, inasmuch as I am the apostle of the Gentiles, I magnify mine office. Paul says, listen, this is a message for you Gentiles. Don't become anti-Semitic. Think of this, you Gentiles. If their rejection of Christ has turned into a huge blessing for you, then imagine how much better it would be for you if they were to come to Christ. If the Jews, by and large, started to come to Christ, imagine what would happen on this globe. Our blessings as Gentiles are attached to God's promises to the Jews. They always have been. So if we are this blessed with just a remnant of Jews, there would be greater blessings once the majority of Israel gets on board. Verse 14, if by any means I may provoke to emulation or to jealousy them which are my flesh and might save some of them. For if the casting away of them be the reconciling of the world, what shall the receiving of them be? But life from the dead. I mean, this is an unimaginable revival. If the Jews were to turn to Christ today, it would be like life from the dead. If the world would not be able to contain the move of God, if the, if the Jewish people all over the globe would turn to Christ. And don't miss this in what God is saying. God is not done with Israel. That's very clear here. He wants more of them to be saved. He wants them to be brought back to life. Again, we're seeing God's mercy and his grace, even on the rejectors. He still, seem, he still sees them as children of their fathers, Abraham. Isaac and Jacob, who God made a promise to, and he will keep. Look in verse 16. For if the first fruit be holy, that is Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, the lump is also holy. If the root be holy, that is Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, and then so are the branches. God is saying, I set apart the lump and the root, pictures of the patriarchs. You know, what he's talking about is this lump is the first fruits offering. They would give the first lump of dough to God. And by doing that, it's kind of like we give our tithe. We give our tithe, the first fruits to the Lord, and we know then the rest of it is blessed. And once we give, and that's what they're saying, once they gave the lump, the rest of it was blessed. Once, once the root is blessed because God has promised a blessing, then the whole tree is blessed. It sanctifies the whole. The whole idea is that God set apart and gave promises to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Therefore, everything that stems from them is special to God. Verse 17, and if some of the branches were broken off, and thou, being a wild olive tree, wert grafted in among them, and with them partakest of the root and the fatness of the olive tree. Now here God is picturing the current majority of Israel is like a branch from the Abraham tree. Here's the tree growing up from Abraham is the root. And they're a branch, the Jewish people are a branch, and now they've been broken off, the majority of Israel. They want nothing to do with God's plan of faith. They don't like this thing that God has going, this Christ, the Messiah coming. But the Gentiles, us, who believe in Christ, are like this wild branch that God took, and he grafts it into the tree. And that grafted in branch, the Gentiles get to soak up all the fatness and all the blessings of being in Abraham and being in this seed of Abraham. We get all the spiritual blessings from this. Father Abraham had many sons. 
I am one of them, and so are you. That little song we sing with the kids. Maybe we should sing, I am grafted in, and so are you. That's what this is saying. We get, we're a wild olive branch, some mangly, ugly thing. They just get put in. You see, there are hundreds of promises that we now get to take part in, especially in our future because we're grafted in. But be careful, Gentiles, verse 18, boast not against the branches, but if thou boast, thou bearest not the root, but the root thee. Don't you dare get arrogant, you Gentiles, on this. Don't you boast about this position that God has allowed you to have. Because you aren't, because what he says here, thou bearest not the root, the root thee, is meaning you aren't supporting the root. The root is supporting you. So don't think it's all from you, that you're working all this stuff out. No, this is God doing this. Good reminder here. Listen, every person has the capacity to have religious pride. Everybody has the capacity to have religious pride. The Bible says knowledge puffeth up. That's a dangerous thing. Arrogance in spiritual knowledge is, a, is an ugly, ugly thing. It creates a divisive spirit and it turns people off to Christ. We have to have love. We can't look at the Jews and think that's only a them problem. They're, they're arrogant about what they believe and won't listen. No, no, no. All of us could get that way. Let none of us boast in, what, that, in the things that we've been given by grace. Verse 19, thou wilt say then, the branches were broken off that I might be grafted in. Well, because of unbelief they were broken off, and thou standest by faith. Be not high-minded, but fear. For if God spared not the natural branches, take heed lest he also spare not thee. Behold, therefore, the goodness and severity of God. On them which fell, severity, but toward thee, goodness if thou continue in his goodness, otherwise thou also shalt be cut off. Again, don't get high-minded, you Gentiles. Do not get arrogant here. God did not judge Israel just so that Gentiles could be grafted in. That's what he says here. God judged Israel for their unbelief. And he could do the same with the Gentiles. Again, Paul is not speaking on an individual salvation level. This is the 30,000-foot view. This is about the blessings. So God's not saying he's going to take away someone's individual salvation if they don't believe. That's not what this is saying. What he's saying is, in an act of judicial blindness, God could send blindness on the Gentiles as well, just as he has done with Israel. At any moment, God could do that if we, as, as a group, uh, walk away. Verse 23, and, verse, and they, the Jews, also if they abide not still in unbelief, shall be grafted in. For God is able to graft them in again. God could turn this whole thing around. Verse 24, For if thou wert cut out of the olive tree, which is wild by nature, and wert grafted in contrary to nature into a good olive tree, how much more shall these, which be the natural branches, be grafted into their own olive tree? See, we don't know the mind of God. If the Jews started to turn to Christ, then God is able to take off that broken branch and graft it right back in again. In fact, this, that's more according to nature. Grafting in a wild branch into a cultured tree is not something that people typically did. That's against nature. That was not something anybody did back then. You don't take a wild branch. You might take a wild stump and put 
a, uh, a, um, uh, a tree into it, or a culture tree, but you don't do it the other way around. In other words, it would be more in line with what God has done to bring back in the Jews than to bring in the Gentiles in the first place. So, with that, Paul speaks about this, God's unshakable course for Israel. Here we go. Let's finish this. For I would not, brethren, that ye should be ignorant of this mystery, lest ye should be wise in your own conceits, that blindness in part has happened to Israel until the fullness of the Gentiles be come in. See, Paul makes it clear this is temporary. This is temporary. This is temporary. This temporary blood, this blindness to this, this is temporary. It's gonna turn around at some point. When? Blindness until the fullness of the Gentiles. In other words, this is a temporary discipline, not a permanent punishment. Once the fullness of the Gentiles has come, God will turn back to Israel. When will this be? Well, Bible scholars give several different options. There's three major ones. One, once a certain number of Gentiles are saved, and only God knows. Number two, it's the end of the Gentile age, whenever that may be, when the emphasis of salvation will no longer be with the Gentiles, but with the Jews. And number three, at the end of the church age, when the rapture comes, followed by the tribulation, and then the restoration of the Jews. Now, we don't know exactly what God is saying, but I lean a little more to the thought that Paul's speaking of the rapture, the seven-year tribulation, uh, because of this next verse. Here we go, verse 26. And so all Israel will, shall be saved. As it is written, there shall come out of Zion the deliverer, and shall turn away ungodliness from Jacob. For this is my covenant unto them, when I shall take away their sins. See, after God finishes all his judgment, during the tribulation, then all the remaining Jews will be saved at that time. Then in a moment of unparalleled victory at that moment, Jesus himself will come down to earth with his saints. He will set up his kingdom here on this earth for a thousand years. And where will that kingdom be set up? Jerusalem. Back with the Jews. The key point here is God is not done with the Jews. He has not cast off Israel. He will be ruling the world from Jerusalem, the Jewish capital. His plan is for, for them is still intact as much as it ever has been. And the unbelievable thing is that all believers, every believer gets to share in those blessings. Verse 28, as concerning the gospel, they, the Jews, are enemies for your sakes, but as touching the election, that is the remnant, they are beloved for the fathers or the patriarchs' sake. For the gifts and calling of God are without repentance. The Jews might seem like enemies to Christians at the moment. But God still takes care of his beloved for their father Abraham's sake. God will never turn his back on them or repent from what he has promised. Every gift and calling he has promised to them, he will perform. This is a statement of fact about the God we serve. He does not give unconditional promises and then rescind them. Even to the people who turn away and reject. See, there's a Greek word Paul uses now for this, and that is elio, which is mercy. Paul, who rarely repeats himself, says elio several times in the next couple of verses. Look at this, verse 30 to 31. For as ye in time past, that is the Gentiles, have not believed God, yet now have obtained mercy through their unbelief, even so have these also, the Jews, now not believed, that they through your mercy, they, may, they also may obtain mercy. In other words, look what God has done. History has flip-flopped. In the past, the Gentiles were in unbelief and did not have the mercy of God. The Jews rejected their Messiah, and so God used that rejection to bring the Gentiles mercy. Now they have not, now the Jews have not believed, and through the mercy that God has shown you, 
they now can obtain mercy. God's going to show them mercy. God works in mysterious ways, but always merciful ways. Verse 32, for God hath concluded them all in unbelief that he might have mercy, Elio, upon them all. In essence, what this means is God looks down to the earth and he gathers all people of the world, all people, into a, a net, as it were. And he concludes that all these people are just un, in unbelief. All, I mean, Gentiles, Jews, really, they're just, they, they're in unbelief. And so they need mercy. So what does he do? He sends his son, Jesus Christ, to die in their place. That's the heart of God. I see everybody, everybody, just in unbelief and they just need mercy. I'm gonna send Jesus. That's why Paul breaks into this amazing doxology here at the end where he describes God's unsearchable counsel for all. Verse 33. Oh, the depth of the riches, both of the wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable are his judgments and his ways past finding out. For who hath known the mind of the Lord or who hath been his counselor? <laughs> That's an interesting question. Who hath been his counselor? Some, we try to be his counselor. God, you should maybe do this. I would counsel you to do this, do it this way. <laughs> he doesn't need our counsel. It wouldn't help him anyway. Verse 35, or who hath first given to him and it shall be recompensed unto him again. What that means is, in other words, you can't make God obligated to you by giving something to him first. See, I gave you something, God, now you have to give me something. No, 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 no. Nobody can do that. For verse 36, for of him and through him and to him are all things. To whom be glory forever, amen. He is the source, the sustainer, and the subject. The greatest thing we can do is just submit to him and give him glory. If he chooses to do things a certain way, just believe it and obey him. And with this, our worship team sang that song last week, The Goodness of God. Been singing that all week long. All my life you have been faithful. All my life you have been so, so good. With every breath that I am able, I will sing of the goodness of God. Amen. Man, what a good and merciful and wonderful God. Mercy, mercy, mercy all over the place. Lord, we thank you for your mercy. We hope you enjoyed listening to the preaching and teaching from God's Word today. You can get more information about our church and about starting a relationship with Jesus Christ at www.thehomechurch.net. From all of us here at The Home Church in Lodi, California, thank you for joining us.